you don't realize the amount you are overcompensating because the emotional part of our brain is so large and, and drives so many of our behaviors that when it's inflamed and sick, it's driving all of your behaviors and you're just trying to get through the day without realizing the damage that you're causing for the next day. You're listening to The Small Business Mastermind, a podcast created by Olympia Benefits to help small businesses juggle business, finance, health, and wellness. I'm your host, Morgan Berna, and if you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, visit olympiabenefits.com slash podcast. Did you know that up to 86% of employees are currently disengaged? and that 72% of companies fail within their first decade due to engagement issues. Yet, by getting one more fully engaged day per month, businesses can see a 3% increase in their revenue. It sounds simple enough, right? But how can you actually get more engagement out of yourself and your team when you're already stretched so thin? By every external metric, we had this really successful business, but we were, we were unhappy. Shane Wallace of CultureSmith is joining us in studio today to answer those exact questions and to help explain the link between engagement and emotional intelligence. He'll also share his secret for leaving a productive workday feeling even better than when you arrived. This is a really great episode, and I know you're going to get a lot out of it. So please enjoy, and I will be checking back in with you again at the end of the episode. We are here today with Shane Wallace, and we're going to be talking about emotional intelligence, and especially the connection between emotional intelligence and the workplace. My name is Shane Wallace, and I am the CEO of CultureSmith Incorporated. Shane Wallace is the founder and chief engagement officer with CultureSmith Inc., Western Canada's first and only practice 100% dedicated to the discipline of workplace emotional intelligence. Entrepreneurs and leaders work with Shane and his team to unlock a level of performance within themselves and the teams that they lead that can only be found through the direct application of EQ to workplace situations. A 21-year veteran within this space, Shane holds a bachelor's degree in humanities from the University of Calgary and is currently finishing his master's in the psychology of leadership at Penn State University. His company's mission is to ensure that every person they work with shows up better at home, having been afforded the opportunity to grow their emotional intelligence while at work. As he is fond of saying, the CultureSmith process is essentially how entrepreneurs stay entrepreneurs. Starting just simply, what is emotional intelligence? Emotional intelligence. So um, emotional intelligence has five dimensions to it. Uh, Self-awareness, self-regulation, empathy, motivation, and social skills. Within the workplace, we focus on the first two dimensions. So self-awareness and self-regulation. So self-awareness is essentially how well do you know what triggers you? Mm -hmm. And self-regulation is are you in control of those triggers or do those triggers control you? Okay. So specifically within the workplace, uh, we look at the common areas where those triggers occur. And so it's equal parts, in trying to address it, it's equal parts treatment and prevention. So from a treatment standpoint, we help, the more we can grow someone's self-awareness, the better their ability to self-regulate when those triggers happen, they can bounce back faster. Yeah. And then our company, CultureSmith, the, the word CultureSmithing comes from building the type of culture that prevents those triggers from happening as often. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, a fairly holistic approach to trying to bring more 
workplace emotional intelligence to the forefront. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And what sparked your interest in emotional intelligence and specifically this relationship between emotional intelligence and the workplace? Um, my Honestly, my complete and total lack of it at one point in my life. Um, the origin story of the firm, we started a, it was a straight ahead recruiting firm uh, back in 2005 called Abacus Recruitment and we focused primarily on finance and accounting placements. Okay. And the recruiting industry in general um, at that time was, it was a pretty robust industry. It was really fast paced, but it was hyper competitive. And the unfortunate byproduct of that is candidates were commoditized, for lack of a better term. They became products. Yeah. And so you were in a constant battle to try and, and build a relationship with a candidate, but do it on a very, very short timeline. And we, at the time, didn't realize the impact that that was having on our own emotional intelligence as entrepreneurs. We were out there grinding every day trying to grow this firm and going home unhappy at the end of the day and yeah. not knowing why. Yeah. By every external metric, we had this really successful business, but we were, we were unhappy. And so through a bit of an executive coaching that I'd received at that time, got introduced to the concept of emotional intelligence, started putting it into practice in our own lives, and things got just instantly better. And the thing with self-awareness is once you have self-awareness, you yeah. have situational awareness. And so when we started interviewing clients and candidates in our standard recruiting practice, you started noticing where they were potentially lacking certain elements of emotional intelligence. So on the client front, we would have clients call us up and say, hey, we want to replace this person. They're not working out. They're, you know, they're causing this issue, that issue. And we started challenging them a bit, saying, okay, well, are they creating the issue or are they responding to issues that you're creating? How much of this mm-hmm. do you own? And many clients didn't like that, but there yeah. was a handful that said, okay, I've, I haven't really thought about that, so if I were to address that, how would I? And we said, well, I don't know, but here's how we did it within our own business. Yeah. And then on the candidate side, it was when we're unhappy at work, we're just unhappy. We spend so many hours a day at work that so many candidates were coming through to us saying, I'm unhappy, I need to switch my job. And we would just break that statement up for them, say, okay, well, let's, there's two issues there. One is you're unhappy. Yeah. The other is you may need to switch your job. Let's work on the happy first. And if we get happy fixed and you still want to switch jobs, then we know it's authentic. And, and, but if we don't do that, the worst thing we could do is try and get you a new job when you're in this current state. Yeah, And so these, it, honestly, it started as just sort of a value add. Uh, we never thought it was ever going to be a business. And then we were helped by the downturn. So when the downturn came through and the recruiting business took a pretty sizable hit as a result, companies weren't paying fees to hire anymore. Um, we really didn't have... Yeah, business. Yeah. And we started looking into the abyss a bit and saying, like, what could we do here? And we're like, well, people seem to really be responding to this. Like, what if we actually turned it into a business? Mm-hmm. And so I took a six-month working sabbatical. Um, my partner, Tony, stepped up and started running the day-to-day functions of the recruiting business and went out and hired a bunch of biopsychologists and experts and sort of cobbled together this Frankenstein monster of a system that we had been using ourselves mm-hmm. but said, okay, how, how could we potentially commercialize this? And within three months, we had reincorporated the company as Culture Smith and haven't looked back, and that was six, seven years ago. So. Yeah. I want to go back to a point you had made about, as a business owner, not noticing that it might be you and not the employee that's yeah. the fit. Have you ever had that experience? 100%. And, and the problem with 
The problem with having low EQ is, again, the first element of EQ is self-awareness. So you're not aware that there's a problem and you're not aware that you are the problem. Yeah. And in my my story is is not unlike many of the clients that I've worked with in that it was a, a really painful, rude awakening when when it comes to it, where there were just a lot of really sort of, in all honesty, like just bad behaviors that were justified, mm-hmm. um, rationalized over time because you don't realize the amount you are overcompensating because the emotional part of our brain is so large and, and drives so many of our behaviors that when it's inflamed and sick, yeah, it's driving all of your behaviors and you're just trying to get through the day without realizing the damage that you're causing for the next day. Yeah. Yeah. What made you start focusing on this connection between emotional intelligence and culture? They're sure. both two terms that I feel like these days are being almost used as buzzwords. Very much so. And so I'd like to hear where that, you know, that actually came up to you as the connection and maybe clarify for people how those two things. Yeah, it was, um, so it was a client who had, when we first started working on the EQ work that we were doing, um, at that time it was 100% just we were specking it into the hiring process. Mm -hmm. So how do we, how do we increase the self-awareness in a candidate so that they're making better decisions as to whether or not they should be accepting this role? Yeah. And how do we create that same level of self-awareness in the hiring manager who, what most hiring managers fail to realize is the amount of emotional pain that they are actually in at the point of hire. Like nobody ever hires on purpose. Yeah. Right. We wait until the chair is open and the work's piled up and it's just the, the, the need to get it off our plate drives the hiring decision, mm-hmm. which is why there's so many poor hires. Like um, oh, career, yeah. career Builder did a study last year that showed that 96% of hiring managers admit to making at least one poor hire per year. Uh, I had a job for a while where I was in charge of hiring for my department and anytime I was hiring it was because it was an immediate need. It was never looking for a long-term perfect fit. Agreed. And we had lots of great people come in, but yeah, it was often the culture fit often didn't work out very great. Yeah. yeah. And so with with one of our clients um, at the time, he was the one that had given me this state, this phrase that he had picked up somewhere where he said, um, you know, culture is the way things are done around here. It isn't, it isn't good or bad. Mm-hmm. It's just this is the way things are done around here, where engagement is how you feel about the way things are done around here. And as soon as he said feel, that just kind of triggered, okay, the connection between emotion. And, and so at the time, we had been researching a lot of the environmental factors that go into whether or not somebody has um, a high level of EQ at the time. Because EQ is like a muscle in that you can develop. It's, it's the only element of human personality that you can actually learn and grow mm-hmm. and develop. But no different than a muscle. Um, so you can grow your muscle to be stronger. You can grow stronger EQ, but it can also become fatigued. Yeah. And so there's this concept known as ego depletion, which um, basically states that we have this reservoir of mental energy to draw from on a daily basis. And when it's gone, it's gone. And so if you spend a tremendous amount of time leveraging willpower to go through and try and make it through your day, by the time your day is over, you're just a burnt out shell of yourself. 
And so when we start, and your ability to then be aware and self-regulate diminishes. And so we started looking at, okay, well, if we can control these environmental factors, if we can basically start building a healthier culture that doesn't tax people as much, Mm -hmm. when we are asking them to show compassion to their fellow employee by respecting the different behavioral types and practicing emotional intelligence, it's almost disingenuous for us to ask them to do that if we're not creating the type of environment that allows them to do it. Yeah, absolutely. So backing it up a little bit, what are some signs of perhaps that ego depletion or the lack of emotional intelligence? And on the opposite spectrum, what would healthy emotional intelligence look like in the workplace? It's a great question. Um, So the the sort of blanket one is going to be, uh, I mean, defensiveness is a big one. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at the word defensiveness, you are trying to defend something. So when somebody is perceiving that they are under a certain amount of attack, they're going to respond in kind. Ultimately, there's there's no one universal way to do it. It it really comes down to, we use the four-color behavioral system to determine somebody's behavioral bias. And so it ultimately comes down to that. So, for example, I'm I'm a yellow. Um, Yellows hold what is called the credibility bias. So... When I'm in a low state of EQ, somebody asking me a simple question registers in my brain as a personal attack. So if somebody's just seeking information and I'm going through ego depletion, that question feels like they're questioning me. They're not just gathering information. They actually don't believe me. And so the defensiveness will come out. Where conversely, somebody who is green, for example, holds a connection bias. They, they are the quintessential people people. When they're triggered, they actually regress, right? Mm. They'll, they'll actually become, they'll give you the cold shoulder because they seek connection. So when they're triggered, they will rob you of connection, assuming that they are causing you pain. And the problem is, so they'll go sit in their office and be super, super quiet the whole time wondering why is nobody coming and checking on me? Mm-hmm. Where a lot of leaders have the opposing, the red profile, where if you're out of a red's way, they just assume there's no problem. They're super results oriented and driven. They're oblivious to the fact that there's even an issue. Mm. And they tend to learn about it in an exit interview when this person says, well, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. Right. Do you want to go over the colors quickly just sure. to give some context here? Yeah. So the, the again, there's there's four, and it, it's based off um, Jungian psychology. And so there's anybody that's ever taken a quote-unquote personality test. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things with that is there's a distinction to be made between a, a personality test and a behavioral assessment. And, and most things that get, like, like Myers-Briggs and DISC and Insights, that get marketed and packaged as personality tests are, in essence, behavioral assessments. Mm. The distinction to be made there is that a behavior is just a hard-coded set of preferences. Yeah. So when we determine somebody's behavioral color, we're very, very, we're adamant up front and letting them know, like, you are not your behavioral color. Like, this is a strong system of preferences. It doesn't mean you cannot adopt the traits of another color with enough self-awareness and enough self-regulation. I think that's important to know because a lot of times we'll get caught up in these. Um, I had a friend mention that she worked at a company where they did a type of personality test or behavioral assessment, I suppose, Mm -hmm. and afterwards employees started Mm -hmm. saying, oh, I can't do that, I'm a... 
I'm this. I'm that. That's not in my wheelhouse anymore. 100%. Or the, um, the other end of that spectrum where people no longer trust them to do it. Yeah. I can't give this to you because you are this behavioral color. Mm-hmm. Or even worse, um, you know, reds are very, very direct. So we'll go through uh, a session and somebody's like, oh, no, I actually get to yell at you now because I'm a red. It's, it's who I am. Yeah. And so we want to be very, very clear. Like uh, we actually threw a marketing campaign out a couple of weeks ago to make the colors look like paint swatches that you'd find at a Home Depot to show like there's different shades of these colors based on how aware you are of what behavioral color you are. Yeah. Yeah. But simplistically, it comes down to, I mean, anybody that's listening right now can literally assess themselves by asking two questions Um, and it's level of cognition and level of communication. So cognition comes down to how you think and, and what you use to think with. Do you use your brain or do you use your gut? So what we would call thinkers are very cerebral and very data-driven, and they need a lot of facts and figures before they feel comfortable pulling the trigger on something, where feelers um, are more emotional with their thought processes. They tend to pull the trigger faster. They're more instinctive. Um, And as we joke when we do these sessions live, um, if anybody that's listening is debating as to whether or not they're a feeler or a thinker, it indicates they're a thinker because we haven't given them enough information, and so they're struggling to make the decision. The second, uh, the second variable is uh, communication, which comes down to whether or not somebody is a speaker or a listener. Mm-hmm. And this one can sometimes be a little bit trickier because of um, social, social shaming, really. It doesn't matter whether you are a speaker or a listener. The bulk of the feedback you've received over the course of your life is to be the opposite. Oh, absolutely. And so speakers, the litmus test is how often do you get the urge to interrupt? So you may not be interrupting because you've been told not to interrupt, but you're kind of screaming inside to throw your two cents in. If you feel that pull often, you're a speaker. If the opposite is true, you're more of a listener. Mm -hmm. So it breaks out into a a greater quadrant. In the top left-hand corner would be those that are feelers and speakers, which would be yellows. That's what I am. Mm -hmm. Uh, Over to the right would be those that are feelers and listeners. They would be the greens. Uh, In the bottom right-hand quadrant would be your thinkers and listeners. They would be blues. And then the bottom left-hand would be the speaker thinkers, which are reds. Hmm. So once you've done these assessments, would that shape into how you're doing the hiring for a company? Yeah, to a certain degree. Um, Again, we get almost militant about making sure the message is clear that... So sales, for example, if, if you look at certain behavioral sales training platforms, they would say that the best salesperson would be a yellow red. Mm-hmm. Yellows because they are credibility seeking. So we're going to go out there. We're going to want to be found credible. So there's going to be that pull to get a client to say yes to us. And then the red results orientation is going to make sure that we actually close the client. Yeah. Well, the highest revenue generating salesperson we have in our company is a pure blue process oriented because his follow-up is better than the rest of us. I'm out there chasing every single shiny object I see, Yeah. where once you get through the first hurdle of making that initial contact with a client, everything else is just the step of the process. Mm-hmm. So yes, it informs the hiring, but more what we would say is that it informs the support that the person needs in order to be a successful hire. Yeah. So we focus on the, the, the only variable that we get really, really rigid with in clients is do they fit the culture? Yeah. If they fit the culture of the organization, the rest of it can be taught and developed through onboarding performance management. But again, that requires a pretty engaged leader that is willing to willing to make that investment because, again, 
they're waiting to hire when they're in pain. Yep. The second they hire, that pain goes away. And if they've done a really thorough, exhaustive hiring process, this subconscious assumption forms that, well, we've solved all our problems, we've got the right person. And yep. they forget to onboard and they forget to support them. And the turnover increases and they wonder why. So when you say emotional intelligence can be taught and work sort of like a muscle, does yeah. that depend on these behavioral types? Is it different for everyone how they would work on that? Or is there a universal way that people can work on building yeah. their emotional intelligence? It's universal. Um, the, the simplest analogy that we give that seems to resonate with people is, uh, irregardless of what your behavioral color is, view your behavioral color as if it's your height. Mm-hmm. Right? Neither one of us are getting any taller than we are today. Uh, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that our weight is going to stay the same, mm-hmm. right? We can control our weight. We can get bigger or smaller with a change in diet and exercise. It's the same thing with emotional intelligence. So I, th- I will never be anything other than a yellow. Yeah. I can learn how to mitigate the liabilities associated with my yellow mm-hmm. and how to maximize the assets associated with my yellow through the practice of emotional intelligence, through becoming more self-aware knowing what it is that triggers a yellow and knowing that those situations can be engineered. So if I, for example, many, many yellows are viewed as chronic procrastinators and it comes down to, and, and if there's any entrepreneurs that are listening to this, many, many entrepreneurs fall within the yellow spectrum within the color system mm-hmm. and they're not really procrastinators. Um, they we lack a certain amount of intrinsic motivation and so what we're essentially doing is outsourcing our motivation yeah to pressure is we will procrastinate to build up the pressure because we always perform under the profession pressure and we mm-hmm. perform best under the pressure and so because our best work comes from pressure again without being self-aware we will just subconsciously create as much pressure as possible to get as much performance as possible which was my story when I say our, our firm was successful by every measure. It just came at an, a, a massive emotional cost that I wasn't aware of. Mm-hmm. Something that we had chatted about um, on our call before we recorded here was looking at the workday as a workout yeah. in a sense. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? For sure. So if we're using this analogy of emotional intelligence being a muscle that you can grow, mm-hmm. um, this is where our, our concept of workplace emotional intelligence came in. So when we, um, when we look at the mission statement and the purpose of CultureSmith, we say it is to have every single person that we work with show up better at home having leveraged emotional intelligence while at work. Because when we enter the workplace, we're surrounded by a lot of really, really smart people and we're solving really, really cool problems. And so to leverage that, to use that as a workout so that we're peaking at five, six o'clock when we get home, as opposed to being in, a, being in an environment or, or not having the tools so that ego depletion takes over and we become more and more burnt out over the course of the day. Because when that happens and we walk through the door at the end of the night, um, our guard is down and mm-hmm. we will take it out on those that we are closest to because we think we can. Mm-hmm. And it just creates a huge, a vicious cycle. In fact, the, the app that we're developing, uh, we're calling Spiral for that very reason is we're trying to disrupt that downward spiral that is created. 
perfect name. Yeah, thank you. And um, it, it comes back to, I, I was giving a talk a few weeks ago um, leading up to the Super Bowl on how the NFL gets it right. Because if you think of the average NFL player, the average NFL player is paid to practice more than they're paid to play, right? They play 16 games a year, but there's a half a dozen practices for every game. Mm-hmm. And so the question I put to the crowd is, are you being paid to practice as much as you're being paid to play? And everybody said, no. I said, well, you are if you recognize that game day isn't at work. Game day is when you walk through the door at night. Mm -hmm. And so if you actually treat the workplace as the full contact padded practice that it's meant to be and go through the reps and use emotional intelligence and the techniques that you can learn to solve really, really cool problems at work, the best version of you, the well-practiced version of you, could be the one walking through the door at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really what we're trying to do. I think the comments about self-awareness really hit me because sometimes we get in our own heads and we see our day. So we know that, you know, we got up, we went to work, we did so much there, we were talking to all these people, and then we go home and it's almost just a continuation. You just, you're continuing your day, not realizing that that's the first interaction you're having with maybe your partner, your spouse, so on. Mm -hmm. That's the first they're seeing of you. So if you are showing up and you're not really self-aware of how you're acting there, I can see that spiraling out. It it is. Um, One of the things that we do, um, we've only had a handful of clients actually agree to do this, um, but we do it. Um, I have my kids do 360 reviews on me. And so, because they're a great source of feedback. Yeah. And there was a situation a few years ago where my middle daughter, so it's, it's really simple because they're kids. We, I don't expect them to fill out a 20-page assessment. Um, but we give them three questions. I, I say, what are start, stop, continue. What am, I, what am I not doing as your dad that you want me to start doing? What am I doing as your dad you want me to stop doing? And what am I doing as your dad you want me to continue doing? And by no means are they going to get everything on their list, but it at least facilitates a discussion. Yeah. And one of my daughters, um, who's also yellow, um, her, under, under the stop column, her feedback was, I need you to stop lying to me when you tell me that my art looks really good. <laughs> and I said, okay. And she says, you don't do it all the time, but I can tell when you do it. And I said, okay, well, what, what's the difference? Like, yeah. tell me. And she said, well, when you like what I've made, you'll ask me a lot of questions about it. You'll ask me why I chose certain colors, why I went with crayon instead of paint, why I went on paper instead of canvas. Yeah. Where if you don't like it, you'll say, oh, that looks really good, sweetie, and then you'll go do something else. And I said, okay, Ash, like, that's not me liking or not liking your art. That's me being present or not being present. Yeah. And so I took that to the office the next day, and I said, okay, guys, like, I'm not showing up present at a time when I need to. So we got to reverse engineer this. What's contributing to that? How is it that this is showing up with enough regularity that I gave her one thing to, to get me to stop doing, and this is the thing she chose? Yeah. This has to be real. And it led to that 360 review that my daughter gave me led to a material redesign of my role, which led to a material redesign of our firm. Wow. How can business owners become more conscious of their emotional intelligence if they're not getting that feedback at this point. Yeah. Is that something where you'd suggest going and talking to your team, doing a review? Is it something internal you do? Yeah, all of that. Well, yeah, I mean, you've already identified it, which is feedback. I mean, in the early going, it, it's really hard to grow self-awareness without appropriate feedback. Mm-hmm. And the challenge with entrepreneurs specifically 
It's interesting. There was a, a study that was done a few years ago by Inc. Magazine, and they said that 72% of entrepreneurs will develop some form of mental health problem uh, relative to 7% of the general population. And they were saying, oh, what, like, clearly entrepreneurship is super stressful because it's creating all of these issues. Yeah. And one of the psychologists that they consulted with challenged, and they said, no, I, we think you have it backwards. It's, it's actually more akin to the fact that those prone to mental health issues are attracted to entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. And so when you start running a business, there's no shortage of... There's no shortage of things to go and chase and try and gain self-validation. And unfortunately, when we're doing that, we're making very, very short-sighted decisions. And the entrepreneurs that tend to have the most success with our system in the early going are actually the ones that have experienced the most failure. Because yeah. the, the ones that have had a lot of success have no shortage of data to go and look and say, well, I'm a rock star. Like, yeah, yeah things could be better, but I'm doing awesome. Like, like look at all of this. Mm-hmm. And they're miserable. And so we'll start saying, okay, well, have you ever had a 360? Have you, what, what does your team actually think of you? Um, how are things at home? Yeah. And when we start collecting that data for them, in many instances, we have to be pretty delicate because they're hearing some very, very real things for the first time. And the last thing we want to do mm-hmm. is trigger them to the point where they shut down and you know, go into a shame spiral. We want them to be able to take this and say, okay, mm-hmm. here's the catalyst for growth. It sounds like it's getting people to move past seeing feedback as this negative personal attack. Oh, it's a gift. And seeing it as, yeah, a gift, something that you can actually work off of. Yeah. And it's something that's going to help you improve your day-to-day yeah. life. We use that metaphor of feedback as a gift all the time because um, feedback is a gift. Um, and it's one of those gifts where you have to be really, really careful about how you package it. Mm-hmm. Right? If you make the packaging so pretty in, in the sense that you are varnishing the feedback so that you're not going to trigger them, you're not really giving them authentic feedback. The, the packaging is so pretty they don't want to open the gift. Mm-hmm. Where if you just give them unvarnished truth, right, you are packaging that, that feedback in such a blunt way that they can't actually absorb the feedback because they're so triggered by yeah. it. Yeah. So I would imagine then for, for people listening, if you do have employees, yes. maybe a good place is to go chat with them. And if you are working for yourself, maybe ask your spouse, maybe ask your kids, maybe yeah. a friend. A hundred percent. And we would go spouses and friends and, and a lot of entrepreneurs um, that we work with, mm-hmm. they typically do have some form of tribe, whether it's fellow entrepreneurs, yeah. whether it's bankers, lawyers, like whoever's in there, they, they've got people within their inner circle they just have never really asked these types of questions. So we recommend that you start there. The danger with going to employees first is, again, most leaders haven't really defined their culture yet, at least not in emotional terms. And so they don't know the degree to which they have culturally aligned employees. So we've seen situations where a leader will go and solicit feedback from an employee base and they're asking the wrong people because the employees that they are getting the feedback from shouldn't be there. Yeah, They're misaligned with the culture. So the feedback that the business owner is getting is completely tainted. And if they actually put it into practice, they are placating the wrong element of their culture. So when we start our process, we make sure that they're getting really clear on what the culture is, then determining how many people that they have that are aligned. 
and then really putting a ton of stock in the feedback from those that are incredibly well aligned. Mm -hmm. Um, But we caution them, like, don't go and ask the question if you're not going to follow through because there's nothing worse than getting somebody to speak up and doing nothing with it. Oh, yeah, because it's hard for people to give that feedback to. Completely. I had seen that you had um, done a talk where you spoke about the difference between values and valued for culture. Um, How could that tie into this where a company is establishing what their culture is? Most people put a couple words up on the board and say that's what it is. Are we choosing the right words typically? Are we looking in the right direction? Rarely, if all. So the... um, we ask clients to make six, six mindset shifts um, over the period of about a year in order to authentically bring emotional intelligence to the forefront of their business. And the first um, shift that we ask them to make is to go from having values to becoming truly values-led. And they can't do that unless they have fundamentally authentic values. So we actually did a multi-year study on and uncovered the the four fundamental flaws that exist within most core value statements that lead to values not being followed by a leader or the rest of their organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where the whole valued over values comes in, or sorry, values over valued is the majority of the words that organizations were coming up with were, as you say, they... They had a facilitation that was either run by a consultant or a friend, and they came up with a lot of really great sounding words. Yeah. They look really pretty on the website. They conceivably think that, well, if a client ever saw these words, they would think we're a good company. Yeah. But they came up with things that are of value as opposed to values. So I value my winter jacket today more than I'm going to value it in July. So there were so many of these value statements that were a house of cards and, and weren't really contributing to anything. And so what we did was went through and hired a bunch of experts to help us um, come up with basically a master list of values, of, of universal beliefs that we're actually going to lean on when the going gets tough. Mm. And then we just put them through our system where we broke them into the four colors and, and all of these different things and created a set of guardrails um, like one of the things that, that people fail to realize is it's not easy to live your values. It, no. It's difficult because they are principles. They, they, when they are tested, it is super easy to abandon them. And a lot of leaders think, oh, we've got these values. This is great. This is going to be the rallying cry. And it's like, no, this is going to point out what you have to do. Yeah. And the second our brain is met with something that we have to do, it's automatically going to go seek something that we want to do instead. Yeah. Could you give an example of one that you use at CultureSmith? Yeah. So with um, a prime example, so um, when we build values for an organization, we actually build two sets of values. We build what are known as functional values. So these are the good behaviors that will increase the functionality of the culture. But we also build what are known as frictional values, which is these are the good behaviors that will lead to bad outcomes. So it's easy to eliminate bad behavior that we don't want. We don't want to hire lazy people. We don't want to hire rude people. We don't want to hire indignant people. But I'll give you an example from ours. So one of our functional values is dependability. 
So whenever we are doing something from a relationship standpoint, whether internally or with a client, we have to live the value of dependability. Um, The counter to that is loyalty. So loyalty is a frictional value within our company, which essentially means we eradicate loyalty from within our culture. Which sounds very counterintuitive. It does. If we went out and we polled 1,000 people and just asked them, is loyalty a good thing? The vast majority of them would say yes, even if they were neutral towards the concept of loyalty. Mm-hmm. But I'll give an example of it in, in play. So uh, somebody that is driven, it, it, it comes down to a choice. So if I, if I were to give you two choices right now, uh, I'm going to give you $50 cash or I'm going to take out a lighter and I'm going to hold the flame to your forearm for 30 seconds. Which do you choose? The cash. The cash, right? <laughs> If we asked everybody that question, outside of the odd contrarian or masochist, everybody is taking the cash. Now, the problem with that is whenever we have a clearly good versus a clearly bad outcome, Mm -hmm. it's the rational part of our brain that makes that decision. Well, the definition of employee engagement is the emotional connection that an employee has to their company's goals and objectives. So what we're trying to do is create the emotional contrast, not the choice between good and bad. What is the choice between good and good? Yeah. So when I'm faced with, I can either be dependable here or I can be loyal here. The people that are going to thrive in my culture are the ones that automatically choose dependability. So if I give you that same 50 bucks, you can have 50 bucks or you can have unlimited time with your best friend. Or you can have an unlimited amount of your favorite food, or you can spend an unlimited amount of time doing your favorite thing. Is the money automatically going to win? That's tough. Right? What's happening now is your emotions are getting involved. Your preferences are coming to the forefront. And Mm -hmm. so we want to be able to test people against, okay, when tested, is it going to feel better for you to be loyal or is it going to feel better for you to be dependable? If it's going to feel better for you to be loyal, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It means you're going to be really uncomfortable within my company. Yeah. And it would be different for every company. 100%. Yeah. Like we don't have a single client on our roster that has loyalty as a frictional value. We're the only one. Hmm. That's interesting. What shifts have you started to see in companies you've worked with once they start working on this emotional intelligence and their overall self-awareness? Sure. So I'll break that into two. Um, so there's the the hard gains um, and so there, there's three that, that tend to show up right away. Um, absenteeism uh, drops mm-hmm. dramatically. Uh, turnover drops dramatically. And productivity increases dramatically. So all three of those are going to impact the bottom line. Um, there was a, a sort of a landmark study done about 10 years ago called the McLeod Report that tried to measure, tried to quantify the financial impact of engagement on a workplace culture. And mm-hmm. the numbers that came out of that is for every $10,000 in salary paid to a disengaged employee, they create an additional $3,400 in waste. Wow. And so, and then 85% of employees would be registered as at least moderately disengaged. Yeah. Now, the problem with it is it's, it's death by a thousand cuts because you, the business owners don't receive an itemized invoice with all of these costs on it it's very easy to get lost and and to just bleed out after a while. Mm -hmm. And so we're using emotional intelligence to address that engagement issue. Again, because engagement is the emotional connection somebody has to their company, we just argue that if you can strengthen that emotional engagement through emotional intelligence, your engagement can either be bought or it can be taught. Yep. And buying engagement doesn't work. 
And that's what most companies do. They do. Anytime I've heard talk about engagement, it goes to what per- like what perks can we give? What 100%. other benefits can we give? I don't think I've ever heard someone say, what can we teach? Exactly. Well, and that's so um, our sort of token, somewhat glib uh, definition of, of engagement is engaged employees are there for what they give. Disengaged employees are there for what they get. Yeah. So if your solution to fix engagement is to run an employee engagement survey, get all of the feedback, and then start giving them what they're asking for in the hopes you're going to drive engagement, you've become the giver, they've become the getter. Yeah, you already have a problem there. Exactly. Where if you can actually figure out what makes them tick, if you can actually figure out how to make them happier by teaching them how to be happy, you are getting the corresponding benefit of increased productivity, mm-hmm. of increased engagement, of increased resourcefulness and innovation, all of these things that companies, uh, you know, leaders fly all over the continent going to conferences trying to figure out, well, how do we innovate? How do we come up with the next great widget? Yep. Stop emotionally beating the hell out of your people. Yeah. Right? Every great idea that you ever need is sitting in your office right now. Yeah. You're just systematically locking it within people's brains by trying to drive productivity out of them instead of trying to unlock engagement from within them. Do you do things like restructuring employees' tasks, yeah. changing around what might be traditionally done within their role? Yeah. Um, actually, a really simple exercise that everybody listening can do um, without a ton of guidance. It's called Save, Send, System Support. Okay. And so essentially what ends up happening is, is you gather a team and you get everybody on that team to list every single thing they do on a daily basis uh, as, as, as down into the minutia as possible, just these huge laundry lists of tasks that they do. Yep. And then next to every single task, they are going to write a number between one and five, and that number is a joy factor. How much does this task fill my cup? Yep. So anything that's a four or five, I was put on this planet to do that task. Anything that's a one to a three, I hate doing it. I want, I want to put a drill bit through my temple every time I have to do this. Yep. And so what ends up happening is all of the tasks that get listed as a four or five, um, those become save tasks, right? People will get hyper-protective about keeping that on their desk yeah. because it makes them happy. Everything that is a one to a three gets thrown into a master list. And what happens is it's almost like the NHL expansion draft is the, <laughs> the fours and fives become the protected players that each, each person's going to keep. Yeah. Everything else goes into the expansion draft. And so now I'm going to look at everything that my teammates listed as a one, two, or three. Mm-hmm. And if I think it's actually a four or five, I ask if I can draft it over onto my team. And by the time we go through a process like that, everybody everybody has gotten rid of at least one or two things that suck the happy out of them. Yeah. Everybody has gained one or two things that make them really, really happy. And then with whatever is left over, we then ask the system question, can we actually get rid of this stuff with some form of a system? Why are we even doing this task? Yeah. And then anything that is left over that is a one to a three, but you have to keep, then we start with support. Mm-hmm. How do we boost your self-awareness and your self-regulation so that this task that feels really painful to you doesn't feel as painful over time? Mm-hmm. That's such a good way to look at it. I think that's a concept I've heard a lot where there, I see a lot of blogs and articles writing about moving beyond just having a static role, mm-hmm. knowing a little bit of different things in the company, but I haven't seen it broken down quite like that. Yeah. I feel like that almost be kind of a fun activity too. It's a lot of fun. And that's where like what really unlocks it and makes it 
super effective is if you know the behavioral colors of everybody in the room because yeah. you, you can start to see because and it's kind of critical that you do that in certain instances because there are certain behavioral types that even if they don't like the task they're not going to admit they don't like the task because yep. their type dictates that they're not allowed to admit fault yeah and so you do want to have a bit of facilitation there in the sense that y- you want to make sure that they you're creating a safe enough space for them to rate something a one. Oh, absolutely. Without fear of reprisal that, you know, yeah. my boss is going to, you know, get rid of me because I'm saying I don't like my job. Mm-hmm. That's not it. You mentioned in our call as well that employees should not be expected to leave their baggage at the door. Yeah. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, it's so it's based on the principle of psychological safety. And when we start talking about psychological safety, again, it's another concept that is a little bit buzzwordy right now. Mm-hmm. And the danger with any of these sort of buzzwordy trends, and we spoke of this on the phone, is they become really easy to dismiss. Yep. And psychological safety gets, um, gets miscast as creating a super sanitized, super safe work environment where we're not really allowed to talk about anything uh, for fear that we're going to trigger or offend someone. Yeah. And it's actually the exact opposite. Um, psychological safety is all about creating an environment where you can actually have healthy conflict. We're told to not bring certain issues at the door, but your brain doesn't know that. Your brain doesn't know how to leave it at the door. Yep. And so if you're asked to leave certain issues at the door, there's a program running in the background that is preventing you from engaging. And now I'm not saying that I'm encouraging companies to to have people come in and air their dirty laundry and say, look, I'm really struggling with this issue at home and I need your help with it. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is recognize that when a certain individual is going through a little bit of pain, acknowledging that pain and saying, hey, here's how I can help you with that pain by helping you absolutely kick ass at work today. Yeah. Right? Like, I can't solve your issue. Yeah. But I can make sure that the happiest, most motivated, most productive version of you is here for whatever, six, eight, nine hours that you're here. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you that that version of you is probably going to stand a better chance of going home and solving whatever your issue is, where if I condemn you for bringing your emotions to work and make you feel even worse, you're not going to be productive. I, as your boss, am losing any form of productivity from you. I've probably encouraged you to put your, activate your profile on LinkedIn and an even more miserable version of you is going home and making whatever issue you're dealing with that much worse. That's a good point. I think we're quite afraid of emotions at work, or at least we're told to be. Yeah. So that's a good idea to leverage that and say, okay, what's this employee awesome at? Let's work on that today. Absolutely. And it's just we just want it to come from a place of, again, another buzzwordy term, servant leadership. Um, it is, is misunderstood by especially um, small business owners and entrepreneurs who mm. are forced to wear so many different hats that this concept of putting their employees first, it just seems odd to them. Yeah. And in order to make it work, the owner needs to get really, really clear on what, what the business needs from the employee. Yeah. And once they can get really clear on that and articulate it to the employee and say, look, like this is what the company, if we picture the company as its own person, here's what this person needs from you. You are now a servant to the company, mm-hmm. but I'm going to be a servant leader to you. I'm going to make sure that the runway is cleared and you are set up to deliver to your primary customer. Mm-hmm. Your primary customer just happens to be this company. It becomes symbiotic. Yeah. Everybody is getting what they need. 
and it's it's just I, I can't describe how much better that is and how much more fulfilling an entrepreneur's life is when they can do that mm-hmm. versus the kind of old school command and control yeah way of doing things I hope I'm not paying the picture that you know that leaders are are, are stuck in the dark ages like no. there was a time and place for command and control um, you know 30 40 years ago what an organization needed from a person was productivity yeah they, they needed subservience they needed compliance well as the work for as the workplace has become more automated we don't need somebody to you know, uh, turn a rivet a thousand times a day. Yeah. We've got a machine that will do that. What we need is them to be creative. What we need is for them to think, okay, how is our competition going to innovate and put us out of business? Well, I got, I got to beat them to that. Mm-hmm. Well, the brain is not creative when it's under stress. Yep. And so, you know, things like forced ranking performance management systems and all of these things that are considered best practices to this day, they don't align with the way the brain is developed. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a phenomenal book called uh, Brain Rules uh, by a guy named John Medina. And I think it's chapter three. He says, if you wanted to design a torture chamber for the brain, it would look like the modern workplace. We're, we're not, our brain is not built to thrive the way we have our company set up. Yeah. And competition has changed so much. Agreed. You, you don't just compete with companies doing the same thing as you these days. You're competing no. with Netflix. You're competing with YouTube. You're competing with people's attention across the board. So innovation is extremely important. 100%. And it's very hard to be creative when you're forced to do something all day that just doesn't, it doesn't inspire you. Yeah. It's not in your wheelhouse. Yeah. Well, and, the, and understanding that innovation isn't a project. Yeah. You're, you're not going to go innovate and create a product and you're done. Yeah. Like innovation is a mindset. It's, you need to constantly be, mm-hmm. be doing it. And again, that's just not going to happen. I'm, it's going to happen a whole lot easier when you are self-aware of your triggers. And it's going to happen a whole lot more effectively when you can self-regulate and you're in a brainstorming session and somebody starts critiquing your idea and you start getting your back up and you recognize, okay, no, this is just me. They're not attacking me. Yeah. Yeah, They're attacking the idea. Like, like we're trying it better that it gets vetted in this room before we take it to market. Mm-hmm where I've been in the room with countless leaders that will just shut that meeting down and not talk to anybody for a week yeah, because they're offended over an honest question. I'm curious with the companies you've worked with, what differences have they seen in their recruiting before and after doing these exercises? Sure. Um, so there's two. Um, one is they will finally become comfortable being picky about who they hire. Yeah. So there's so many, especially um, smaller business owners or startups that have scaled to a certain point that, that are still subconsciously feeling a little bit insecure. They're, they're so surprised that anyone would want to work for them that they literally will let anyone work for them. Yeah. Um, either that or the hero complex of, I know this person isn't going to be 100% fit, but I can fix them. I can mentor them. I can grow them. And, and it never works. Yeah. So once their culture gets established and once they start seeing the benefits of, of EQ within the workplace, they become hyper-protective of it, which is great. The second thing is they become better talent evaluators themselves. Mm-hmm. So one of the first things we do, aside from creating the benchmarks for clients that are going to enable them to spot the degree to which somebody is going to be a fit for their culture, 
is we work on confirmation bias. So because their brain is so triggered when they're hiring, because there is such a huge pull for the pain to go away by filling the chair, they will start to see assets within certain candidates that aren't there, that are phantoms. And so to get them to set aside their own bias in an interview and be able to just neutrally assess talent Mm -hmm. and set aside the sense of urgency to get the chair filled with the practicality of making sure that I want it to stay filled. Yeah. Those are probably the two biggest changes. I mean, the the quantifiable is, again, reduction in turnover rates and Mm -hmm. uh, increased uh, employee engagement scores, all of those things. Because it's important to note from a hiring standpoint, so six, um, Forbes stated that 60% of all turnover, all turnover within an organization uh, stems from hiring poor people. And the majority of the turnover comes from having top talent exit because you've hired a poor fit and put them next to that person. Yes. It has nothing to do with hiring the poor person and having that poor person leave within the first three to six months. It comes from actually alienating the top performers that you have by not respecting them. Yeah, and the culture that you started. The culture that you've started by making sure that you are protecting it every single time. Like the other end of that spectrum is literally, like we say to clients all the time, the goal is one plus one equals three. We want you to hire somebody that is not only a great fit for the culture, but because they're such a great fit for the culture, they're actually unlocking potential of the people that you already have. Yeah, I've seen both scenarios in workplaces for sure. Yeah, comes to mind. So you're going to have easier hiring, you know what you're looking for, and then you're retaining people as well, it sounds like, as long as you keep hiring within your structure and within just just being conscious of it and aware. Yeah, and keep hiring. Now that you say that, that that brings up another one is... um, where this works really, really well when you can get the benchmarks in place and you know what you're looking for is you will actually start proactively looking to high grade your team. Yeah. Right. You won't wait for the chair to be open. You will know. So we create these batteries of questions for leaders that we call cocktail questions because they're so conversational in nature that you could ask them at a cocktail party and not look out of place. And mm-hmm. we're basically essentially teaching them to be interviewing everyone they meet all the time. Yeah. Doesn't mean that if they find somebody that is going to be a fit for the culture, they're going to hire them on the spot, but they are going to keep that mental Rolodex. They're going to stash that away so that when the need emerges, Mm -hmm. they know they've got somebody that's aligned that they could reach out to. And in many instances, they don't even hire the person. Um, Sometimes these people become board members. They become clients. They become stakeholders. They become vendors. Um, You know, we use this construct of an A, B, C, or D player to determine the degree to which somebody is culturally aligned and has the competence for the role. Well, there is such a thing as an A, B, C, or D vendor. There is such a thing as an A, B, C, or D client. There is yeah. such a thing as an A, B, C, or D board member. Right? C- culture needs to be that benchmark that you're measuring all stakeholders against. Yeah. I think of interviews I've been in and the ones where the role's been the best fit for me is usually when during that interview we actually start coming up with new ideas and things we could be doing and it just starts to flow. Yeah. And then there's been those where it's just a little more question answer and you can tell... I haven't really answered that much, but they seem to be yeah, having that confirmation bias coming in and making assumptions yeah. and you can sort of sense it. Yeah. But as the potential employee, you're probably just going to go for it. Yeah. For, well, and that's too. just it. And then not it's thinking about it. not thinking about it. And 
So we're, we've been toying with this, this uh, Skunk Works project for the past three years called CareerSmith, which is basically taking the entire CultureSmith model and f giving it a 180 and trying to find a way to scalably provide it to job seekers to be able to do that. Yeah. So how can you assess, as a job seeker in an interview, how can you assess culture? How can you determine whether yeah. or not you're making the right move? Um, like there's so many candidates that we've interviewed throughout the years that they recognize that they've made the wrong move really, really early on. But then they're like, oh, but I got to stay though, because if there's turnover on my resume, yeah. right, like my marketability is going to go down. And like, so I just, I got, I got to stick it out for the next two or three years. And the whole, you talk about ego depletion, they're just miserable. Yeah. There's a lot of assumption. I think that the interviewer knows what they're looking for. So 100%. if they like you. Oh, they're the expert. Awesome. Yeah, they know yeah. I'm going to fit. Exactly. And yeah. I don't know a single client of mine that has ever been given formal interview training, that has yeah. ever gone through a process where they've been taught how to hire someone, yet they stake literally millions of dollars a year yeah. on their ability in 10 questions over a coffee. Yep. Right? Like there was one client that once upon a time that had created this experiment that was going to determine whether or not somebody was going to be a fit for his culture where he would intentionally, he would, he would always run an interview in a restaurant and he would, it was a regular place for him. And so he had strong relationships with the wait staff and he would intentionally get the waitress to treat the candidate rude. Oh, odd. And he wanted to gauge what the candidate's response was. And based on what their response, he was going to determine whether or not they were fit for a culture. And I just, I, it, to this day, it's still just... <laughs> and he thought it was the most genius thing ever that he had created this experiment that it was going to determine, yeah. you know, if this person was rude and, this, and they bounced back right away. And I was like, there's just so many variables in there that hmm. are not <laughs> determining cultural fit. And, and yeah, anyways. Could you give a little summary of what you can do for companies where CultureSmith comes in and maybe how people can get in touch with you if they're interested. Yeah, that sounds great. So um, there's sort of, I guess, three, I'm going to say four core buckets. So uh, one would be culture transformation. So uh, anybody that's listening that, you know, just this sounds like we're speaking directly to them, that they know that they love their company, but they're not sure why things aren't in proper alignment. Yeah. Um, it's a process that we call cultural revelation, which is basically going in, making sure that your values are set up the right way, determining how many A, B, C, and D players you have, and giving everybody their behavioral colors, and just really getting the basics of emotional intelligence practically in the hands of everybody. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, then it, there's there's three areas where once that foundation is set that you're, you're going to want to test it, uh, or where it's going to fall apart, and those form the other three buckets of our business, which would be hiring support, uh, performance management, leadership development. So all of those are done through the lens of emotional intelligence and mm -hmm. how is it that we are cultivating and growing people to be the best versions of themselves with the thought that if we do that uh, effectively, the business is going to benefit as a result of it. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of contact, um, the simplest way, uh, our website, which is um, www.culturesmithinc.com, uh, LinkedIn, uh, my LinkedIn profile. I mean, we post a tremendous amount of content on a daily basis on this type of stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and then my email is shane at culturesmith.ca. 
I want to say too, I love your website. So if there's oh, any thanks. any fellow marketing nerds out there, go take a look. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty great. I was showing it around the office. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Is there anything uh, that we haven't covered that you wanted to touch on? Or um, no, just the. Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest thing, the biggest takeaway that you've kind of already addressed is a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today has kind of fallen into buzzword camp. Yep. And um, I hope that we've sort of cracked the veneer on that with this discussion because anything that is going to get into the lexicon as a buzzword, there is a reason behind that. It, like, There's yeah. a lot of people with that need. But again, as long as it's not becoming too easy to dismiss, mm-hmm. then I'm cool with it. But... Um, it's easier than people think. Yep. Let me rephrase. It's not as hard as people think. So if, if you if you look at the word hard in the dictionary, the opposite of hard is easy. The opposite of hard is also uh, simple. Yep. This is simple. It is not easy. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of commitment. But it's not like it can be demystified incredibly quickly. It is, again like working a muscle though mm-hmm. one trip to the gym is not getting it done yeah you have to commit to the sets and reps each and every day in order to get the benefit what we fundamentally help individuals and organizations do is behavioral change mm-hmm. and when you look at behavioral change behavioral change happens at three levels it happens at the outcome level it happens at the system level and it happens at the identity level and anybody that's ever read Simon Sinek and the Golden Circle just kind of picture those three rings similar to his Golden Circle and the the challenge is that most organizations and most people focus on the outcome level yeah. right so I want to lose 20 pounds Well, it's actually the system that leads to the weight loss. The system of dieting and exercise is what creates the 20-pound weight loss. And so where the focus needs to be is on the system. But the real shift needs to happen at the identity level where you need to see yourself as someone that can actually follow the system. And so that's where, for example, I I don't skip the gym. Now, I've had five-minute workouts. Yeah. But I'm I'm no longer focused on the outcome. I'm focused on the identity of being the person that follows the system every single day. And so if I skip the gym once, that's an accident. But if I skip the gym twice, that's actually the formation of a new system. Yeah. And so it's critical to just follow the system each and every day. And that's the only way that that's going to happen is if you make the system as simple as possible to follow. Yeah. And I think that's where this has been a nice conversation. It's taking a term that is getting a little confusing out there and yeah. showing that it can be a system. It's not so complicated, but it can be. It just needs work and agreed and uh, commitment. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Shane. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Small Business Mastermind. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Shane and that you got something out of it that you can bring into your own workplace. If you are enjoying the Small Business Mastermind and you'd like to be notified when future episodes are made available, simply visit olympiabenefits.com podcast. And on that page, you'll see a button at the top of the screen that says subscribe. When you click that, you'll just enter your email address and you will be notified when new episodes are posted. We have lots of awesome content coming up and I can't wait to share it with you. So until next time, have a great day and I'll talk to you soon.